very much for coming, and uh, we'd like to start with some relatively short time. Uh, but I see others coming as I, as I speak. Um, we're very, very grateful to the Hall for being here to talk about locating urban migration from census to street. But I think we've lost the census because Antoine, who was meant to be here for the census part of it, is lying in bed with a high fever. So uh, we've got more time to talk about the streets, I hope. And Susie is uh, at Cities um, in the lecturing department of sociology. And you've been working on the Ordinary Streets project yes. for quite a while now. Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Yeah. And it's always been the same street? It has. So the street in Peckham? Yes, Peckham Rye. And uh, look forward to hearing it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to Melissa Fernandez. Uh, for inviting me to speak today, and it's just wonderful to have such a good turnout. Um, I am an ethnographer, so I tend to look at one thing very slowly, which is pretty much what I've done with Riley and Peckham over the past two and a half years. But I've also been frustrated with some of the limits of ethnography. So what you will hear today is uh, um, my perspective um, of how I expand ethnographic work to talk about more macro dimensions of migration. And really I'm going to focus on three core elements. The first kind of question I have is whether contemporary migration processes are also city-making processes. And to unpack that question, I focus explicitly on practices of adaptation and innovation on the part of proprietors on high streets in London. My PhD work was a four-year ethnography of the Walworth Road, not too far away from Riding. But I am equally interested in the practices of regulation that are able or unable to see uh, the practices of adaptation. So for the first year of our project, we spent time on the street, and in the second year, we've spent a lot of time uh, in local authorities, with economic and planning offices, but also with local community groups. Um, I'm very concerned about the, the dynamic between life practices of, of, of livelihoods and life practices of regulation because I think there's an awful uh, lot of politics about who is not recognized and therefore who is not valued. And so one of my questions today will be whether we need to begin to articulate alternative systems of value in order to recognize the dynamics of urban change, specifically under migration. And thirdly, I want to really reassert the role of place and the specificity of locality in migration studies. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through across three very particular types of urban space to reveal very different regulatory and adaptive processes. I'd like to start with the streets um, that I've spent the last two and a half years looking at. Now that's a map of Riley in Peckham, and it basically uh, reveals a face-to-face -face interview that we did with all of the proprietors along the street, and that's a mapping of the independent proprietors and their countries of origin. Now I think it's really important that I read um, that list out because it is the most staggering array. So we start with Afghanistan, England, Eritrea, Ghana, India, Ireland, Iran, Iraq, Jamaica, Pakistan, Kashmir, Kenya, Nepal, Nigeria, Somalia, Sri Lanka, 
Tanzania, Uganda, Vietnam, and Yemen. So one of the questions I'll be trying to address today is why did this particular group of people coalesce or converge on this particular street? And is there any kind of particular practice in terms of adaptation and innovation that arises when you get this incredible plethora of variation on one single locale? Methodologically, as I outlined at the beginning, I'm really interested in extending ethnographic practice. And because my first training is, is as an architect, I kind of very much work through the vehicle of, of physical space. But I'm going to try and chart three particular types of urban terrain that I think are absolutely crucial to understanding migration patterns. So I'm going to begin with what I refer to as the symbolic city to really understand some of the macro-dynamics of change and the broad patternings of change. I'm then going to move specifically to the streets to try and identify what kind of shared practices emerge within a designated or recognisable area. And then lastly, and certainly not least, I'm going to refer to the intimate city, which is really about face-to-face negotiations, new forms of economic enterprise, arising within these micro-worlds. So let's begin with the symbolic city, and please forgive me as my partner in crime is missing here, so I'm going to kind of skirt over some of the census material. But I just want to begin really with Ludi Simpson's really important mapping of ethnic diversity in the UK, and this is really the 1991 to 2001 data. But the first fundamental thing that it begins to reveal to us is that migration patterns into the UK are largely expressed as an urban phenomenon. So in the 2011 census data, we know that 41.6 of all of the UK's migrants reside in London. And if we had to add in Manchester, Birmingham, Leicester and Leeds to that equation, we're up to about two-thirds of the migrant population. So if we've got um, a feature of concentration, this is not just a physical um, aspect of concentration, but it is also how bodies get concentrated. This is work that Antoine Pocut has done. He's put a working paper online, if you're interested in having a look at it. But what he's shown is something really important. So if you arrive into the UK um, and you're from Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and Somalia, for example, you were far more likely to locate yourself in highly concentrated urban environments. Whereas if you're from Germany, Ireland, and Poland, you have a kind of, let's call it migrant capital, if you like, that allows you to spread across villages and towns and across the the far more varied landscapes of the UK. And if we look... Sorry, when you say concentration, you mean concentration of that population? Concentration of that population. So that population will be tended to locate not only in cities, but also in the inner city of cities. And Antoine has very detailed uh, information on this. So if, for example, we just followed that Bangladesh, Jamaica, Somalia pattern, we would understand that these groups are predominantly located in the inner city of cities, and just about hardly at all in rural areas. So the concentration effects are not just spatial, but there's also a highly racialized and ethnicized pattern to concentration. What's interesting if we then go down into London is to understand um, 
the phenomenal variation within inner London. So 113 of the nation's 227 uh, nationalities can uh, be found as being well represented in inner London. That's at least having 1,000 representatives. And what's quite interesting, again, is that if we refer back to where people tend to live, we're seeing that particularly among certain groups, there's, there's very particular local patternings. Um, for example, Nigeria, very much to the eastern end of the city, but Jamaica far more spread um, across large patches of the north, south, and west. I want to then um, talk about not only the phenomena of concentration, but what happens when we get a large populace coming into the UK precisely at the same time as we're getting incredible economic disparity? So if we trace the, the Gini coefficient measure across the UK, um, we're really beginning to see from the red line a marked increase in, in inequality. And that is also in itself um, exaggerated by migration effects. So the top 5% of people living in the UK and the bottom 5% is just radical income inequalities. And when we trace that to inner London, we begin to see that the city itself is uh, the locale in which these disparities are most exaggerated. Now this then begins to raise questions of how we begin to think about the allocation and distribution of public resources in a place that's not only receiving tremendous variation of people, uh, but also requiring very different institutional and civic platforms in order to really uh, make the most of their input in the city. So if we then have to overlay a map of the 10% most deprived wards in inner London and overlay those with Simpson's score of ethnic diversity, we would begin to see a very high correlation between our most deprived areas and our um, most diverse areas. And again, this speaks a lot to a different kind of public imagination that's going to be required to secure resources and to deliver different kinds of institutional resources. Also really importantly, the work that's come out of the Centre on Dynamics of Ethnicity in Manchester has begun to show that there's an incredible disruption in ethnic identity, both in households and bodies. So for example, in the current census data, one in eight households have more than one ethnicity residing within the household and one in five people identified um, with something other than the white British category. So we're seeing a tremendous diversification, not only in spaces, but in households and bodies. So we can begin to conceptualize the locale of the city, something that concentrates migration, that exaggerates some of the features of migration, and particularly in a context where we have tremendous economic disparity, but it also disrupts some of our conventions in terms of how we begin to categorize people and how people categorize themselves. What's really useful, I found, about this scale is the obvious thing that we begin to understand large-scale patterning trends, largely from a domestic or residential perspective. What this scale omits, however, is the absolute crucial dimension of flows. So what we can't capture are intergenerational flows, um, how people orient when they both live and work in different localities of the city, but also the fantastic transnational flows that are very much integral 
to all of our lives. I'd like to now move to the street. And for me, what's important here is you begin to kind of comprehend a recognizable urban area where um, recognizable shared intercultural practices are emerging. So I want to begin with this fantastic map developed by UCL. And what's important for me is, is why, um, why look at the street? Well, in the first instance, for me, it's everyone's London. So two-thirds of Londoners live within a five-minute walk of the high street. Um, I think this map is incredibly important because it is the kind of background spider's web of the city. It's not about prestigious landscapes or Olympic bids. But it also begins to um, suggest that the street, as a site that's distinctive from the domestic realm, has something really important to tell us about how the city and how citizens adapt. Also for me, what's important in the kind of inherent idea of the street is it's about shared prospect. It's a space, it is a public space, even if in a very pragmatic way, people um, can imagine a sense of a future or um, a prospect of investing not just in the here and now but in the beyond. But also, importantly for me, it is also a space of protest. And I think that platform of voicing becomes a really crucial dimension in the location of the street, not only in kind of quite inflammatory events such as these, but in the day-to-day -day mechanisms of how migrants make their voices heard through their business practices, and I'm going to be speaking to that in some detail. Really importantly, um, Rye Lane has a kind of urban DNA that makes it a very good prospect for business. So it has a density that's twice the London average, and this has largely um, has emerged because of the huge investment in a number of very large-scale social housing estates. It also has incredible public transport, so something like 100 buses go up and down that little stretch of street every hour. And of course it has um, a really important railway line which has just received major investment connecting Peckham Rye to the east end of the city and of course making this area very ripe speculation. What's really interesting though is when we interviewed the proprietors on the street, they talk about how they enter the city through reading the landscape and they know in the first week that they're here which of the sites they need to go and look at to test out where they want to invest for businesses and Ryan is kind of identified as one of the top five sites in the south that is going to be really good for their investment prospects, density being a primary element for them. Um, we conducted a, a very short face-to-face -face survey. We basically had five key questions because we knew we had five minutes to interrupt the entrepreneurial rhythm. And so we asked quite conventional questions um, <coughs> like, where have you come from? Um, but what, what's quite interesting here is to understand a predominant pattern on streets like these, and this is not um, atypical for London, where about two-thirds of the trade is in independent proprietor um, retail. Um, there is very limited uh, vacancy on Rye Lane despite the economic recession, so you simply don't see charity shops or religious institutions. Every piece of the ground floor is being actively claimed for business prospects, and the kind of secondary aspects um, or economic aspects that support that street happen one layer back. So you get micro mosques and mini mosques, micro churches and mini churches. 
What's quite interesting is that uh, in terms of the major trades on offer, you still have very high percentages of trade in um, food and in clothing. But what is really interesting to see is the tremendous growth in three industries, halal meat, money remittances, and mobile phones. Three forms of retail which are very hard to procure over the internet, which rely on high levels of trust, but also which are very dependent on migrant networks. Just kind of going back to some of the value systems and how we begin to kind of um, compose a new vocabulary for engaging uh, in policy, one of the questions we asked um, of the proprietors is how many languages they spoke. So this was really interesting to me. 11% of the proprietors spoke one language. 61% spoke two to three languages. But 28%, almost a third, spoke four languages or more. Now, this wasn't just proficiency in regional dialects. This, these, for example, were someone who could speak English, French, Urdu, and Spanish. And there's a kind of multilingual competency that is emerging in these worlds that um, is not readily valued. So one of the things we did by comparison is we quickly looked at the data set available on the LSE experts' pages, and um, I'm delighted to be able to tell you that in the category of, of high levels of language proficiency, Peck and Rylane outperforms the LSE. But what's really interesting in terms of um, cultural capital is that the LSE is able to use its language proficiency to really claim its stature as an international institution that's able to readily build alliances across the world. But this space, uh, language proficiency is largely regarded as a problem. It's a problem because we have to educate so many different, in so many different language competencies at school, for example. And to kind of recognize this as an asset, in my mind, is absolutely crucial to understanding how we we really engage with the prospects of renewal, updating, um, and kind of ways of being 21st citizen that are just not recognized in any of the migration debates to date. Really interestingly, we then spent a year um, working very closely with a lot of the planners in Southwark, and um, we, we asked one of the uh, economic officers, so what's distinctive for you about Rylane? He said, well, we call it the inside-out supermarket. That's because so many of the shops spill their wares onto the street. There's a sensory aspect which is distinctive to some appealing and to others less so. It's a street with very different business models, one being low-entry rents. And then he goes on to say, but there's a split set of demands that's emerging in Peking in general terms. There's an embedded middle class who argue for a tidying up of the street. And Rylane is a mess is a general attitude with the wish that Rylane has more to offer. There's complaints about witches, but in its own terms it's thriving. And another pressure is the creative types who want to open up bars and galleries. So suddenly this, this kind of place that's been the problem child of London has become an incredible um, zone of investment energy. So all the kids from Goldsmiths and from London um, College of Communication are all wanting to kind of access the nightlife there and occupy the studio spaces one layer back. We've also got a street parallel to Rye Lane, um, Bellenden Road, which has uh, received high levels of um, public investment 
And it's very much a kind of cappuccino urbanism street. Now, I, I have to confess that I like a good cappuccino and I like an independent bookstore. But interestingly, it's the model that the council very much regards as a mode of success. And there is very much an inability to recognize different business models um, and different kinds of retails, despite the fact that it's economically thriving. Now, what's really interesting to me is that the council are about to, well, over the past few years, but it's just going through um, its final national um, planning policy stages, um, the council is about to fundamentally replan the street. And what was curious to me was that no detailed economic survey of the street was done before the planning <coughs> exercise was put in place. So there was assumption about the kind of prowess or lack of prowess of the street that in some part <coughs> is largely built um, in very conventional value terms. And there is an, a, a strong appeal in the latest planning document, certainly in the northern end of the street, to reinsert large format chain retail. So what we've also done uh, in order to have conversations with um, uh, local authorities is to try and again get this, this language of contrast to understand that uh, these economic scenarios are not about either or, but how you begin to conceptualize both and. And so we took the Westfield Stratford city plan. This is a scale-for-scale scale comparison. Now, this has been heralded very much as the economic success story of London over the past year. And we learn um, that it has generated <coughs> 300 retail units and 8,500 permanent jobs. By comparison, again, really important work done by UCL, when we look at the town centre here, we understand that it contains 2,100 businesses, so quite a lot more than 300 of Westfield, and it has a total uh, of employees of 13,400, that's not including the informal dimensions. So how do we begin to articulate in more bureaucratic terms that this is a system that has value and how do we begin to understand, to communicate those values? Because this is a system that has litigators and people talking to parliamentarians and marketers that tell us exactly what the view of the whole is. And the kind of prospect and difficulty of this is it's a composition of thousands of individuals and it's very difficult to articulate what the view of the whole is and therefore what the value of the whole is. So for me, what's been so important about conceptualizing the street is that it is very much um, a public that is in common, particularly for those who are excluded from the more prestigious public spaces. Um, really important, it is a space of both, both prospect and protest. And to refer to Amin's notion of micro-publics, it's a world in which people have a shared stake. So it's not only viable that your shop is the shop that's doing well, but if shop, a shop five doors down from you is doing badly, it has a real impact on your business. And that's why I think the second dimension of the street, the exchange, is absolutely fundamental to understanding the multicultural dimension. People on the street don't have an ideological view of multiculturalism. They have a very pragmatic view of it. If it's good for business, we'll find a way of making it work and we'll negotiate. But its vulnerability is that it's so kind of fundamentally ordinary, so seemingly banal, something that we've had as part of our urban infrastructure for hundreds of years, 
that in planning terms, it's very much a taken for granted piece of space, and it has so many actors and so many value systems that change and literally, you know, on a street like this, reinvent itself every 24 hours, mm -hmm. every week. That it's much harder for the bureaucracies to kind of almost keep up with the dynamics of this reality. Moving on then to the intimate city. Something really interesting that we recognized on the street is a pattern that we refer to as mutualisms. Now, this is a mapping um, from 2012, and I'm convinced that if we did the mapping today, it's a trend that would be increasing. But basically, a quarter of shops on Rye Lane um, have subdivided and sublet themselves into micro-units. And the shop from the outside would look very much like a conventional shop, but we understand from doing quite detailed ethnographic mappings of several of these interiors that there's a logic of subdivision that is both mercantile and cultural. Uh, what's interesting um, in this particular unit is that the subdivisions occur across lines of ethnicity, race, and gender. And what you begin to see is a pattern emerging of an enormous amount of young women entering the retail market to do hair and nails. Now, part of the logic of that is the terms of letting. So you basically rent a chair for 50 to 80 quid, and you rent it per week. So you either kind of get your chance to secure your business that week, or you're out. Um, it, has al it also connects to where goods are coming from. So I'm told that 15 years ago, particularly um, the hair industry was very tightly controlled through North American networks, and you basically had to know someone to know someone in order to get into the supply chains. These goods are now made very cheaply in India and China. They're very lightweight, so they're readily shippable. And you can basically buy your business in a bag for 100 quid. So it's allowing a whole lot of young women to enter into the retail market, but of course with no kind of protection. There are no contracts, there's no employment security. Also interesting in, in the shop arrangements is that typically at the back of the shop you would find a money remittance store. Um, now if you go onto a Western Union website, it will tell you that having a Western Union store in your shop increases footfall by 40%. And that once people are in um, into your money remittance system, they will return to the shop every week because that's the system of sending money home. It's also a very innovative system. So, for example, I can walk into a Western Union on Ryland and say, I need to get £1.38 to Cape Town in the next five minutes because I have a relative who needs to catch a taxi to go to hospital. And the money will get there in five minutes. They charge me 10% privilege. Uh, for doing it, but it's, a, it's a, a form of remitting money that circumvents and in a way is far more efficient than the formal banking infrastructure. Um, also really interesting are the mobile phone guys. So they typically will rent um, the space the size of a table and they're paying £500 per square metre per month for the privilege of doing so which makes their, their rental per square meter the same as Knightsbridge, <coughs> which happens to be the highest retail rental value in the world. Now, how are they managing to sustain that? One, they have very small space. Two, they're not just selling uh, the hardware. Where they're really making the money is manipulating the software. So there's high levels of technological expertise as well. Uh, this is another model of um, subdivision, which is very much within... Um, 
a, an ethnic network. So this is all men from Afghanistan. And you can see from the different um, ha hash lines that there's a whole lot of different till points. So there's about five businesses operating from within that business. Um, I have no um, evidence at this point in terms of what's happening to people who live above the shops, but I do have anecdotal stories. We do have evidence in terms of where the proprietors live, and most of the proprietors live far away, and they've kind of secured a presence on the street over years where they've been able to kind of upgrade their status and buy bigger properties outside of Peckham. But where the workers live um, is, is more of a mystery, and I, we have anecdotal evidence that the subdivision of retail interiors is very much being matched in the residential properties above where it would not be atypical to find 10 men, for example, um, having to share a room in order to kind of meet the London rental values. So this is what these shops look like. I like to call this Prada Peckham because it's, it's kind of the hippest, biggest shop on the street. Um, it's, by, uh, it's owned by a proprietor who came from Kabul 12 years ago. He started uh, with a shop the size of a table, and it was very important for his um, business practice that he had the option of a number of stepping stones right from microspace to macrospace to grow his enterprise. Um, and what's also interesting is the different kind of aesthetic and material arrangements, so it would not be atypical to find your SIM cards next to your fresh fish, uh, next to your fruit and veg. And I think this is, a, this is an aspect that's quite, that kind of challenges some of our conventions. So, you know, these shops just don't look like um, shops on Oxford Street. Um, but they have a kind of very different cultural and economic logic that I think really warrants attention. Because I think what is interesting is that in the debates about the future of the British High Street, um, the pursuit has largely been about how can we use technology to animate the street, um, how can we use new forms of retail, how can we use uh, people to manage areas, and of course the migrant dimension has been totally left out of those, dis those discussions. Neil Wrigley's really important work on retail economies reveals, however, that since 2006 there's been a 78.6% increase in independent stores in London, and I suspect that that is very closely tied to patterns of migration. So in interviewing Hassan, who works for one of the fishmongers, he says, I finish in Shalal, I go home forever. I don't want to live here. I earn eight pounds an hour, and I can only work 20 hours a week. Your people are better here. You're European. You can get better work. I'm nothing here. So the story is not just about prowess and ingenuity, it's also about precarity. And of course, Hassan has come in to do a master's degree, and he has to kind of very much exist within the conditions of the migrant student visa scheme, which means that he has to kind of find a way of living for eight pounds an hour for only 20 hours a week. And so he's living in one of those really cramped little spaces above the street, and his existence here over the course of the year has been rather diabolical. Abdul, the local proprietor, the guy who has the biggest shop on the street, says we're busy not because we're making money, but because we're struggling. At this time, we need a community worker who can join us and connect us together. In my experience, these things have changed, which were the roadworks and 
parking restrictions wouldn't happen if we had a trade association. Now, what's really interesting, this was a kind of articulation that came out about 18 months ago, was that someone like Abdul has just, you know, he has a multi-million pound business, but he has no way of exerting any kind of um, civic prowess or communication or authority to the council. He is simply not heard. And so what he's kind of really getting at here is how these very diverse groups of traders begin to get together to organize a civil platform that not only allows them to deal with the banal aspects of parking restrictions and road closures, but that also allows them to deal themselves into the future prospect of the street. And I think you know that is a real um, question here of what these what the patterns of civility, what these platforms of cohesion are going to look like when we're talking about people who come from a wide variety of, of cultural perspectives. And finally, what's been really interesting in dealing with the council is that there's not just um, willful ignorance about the street. In many respects, there is a real um, recognition of the street, but almost... Um, with that, a frustration at not being able to convert that recognition into something consequential. So a Southwark official says to me, with all this rapid change, there's a real difficulty in defining the role of the local authority. And this guy then goes on to say to me, Susie, you know, we're really good at dealing with fire and safety hazards, at making sure that the rubbish is removed from the street, but it's really hard to comprehend the speed of this change. And so for me, the, the interior city is one that kind of really is organized around a shared stake um, about common interests. It's, as I said, it's not essentially ideological. It's a very uh, intimate scale of being where you have to negotiate on a day-to-day -day basis things like how do you share a toilet, who locks up at night, uh, if you're holding thousands and thousands of pounds at the back of your shop in a money-written mitten store, how do you deal with security? But also quite uh, part of the um, prowess, but also the limits of this interior space is that it essentially flies below the radar. So if you're simply judging the street from the exterior, which is what um, a lot of people would be doing, and specifically planners, um, then, you, then you miss the kind of cultural ingenuity that's going on. Uh, you also miss some of the patterns of precarity. And so I want to kind of return um, to the map that I began with to kind of just highlight a few points that have been so critical for us in, in engaging in this work. And the first is really to begin to explore with both a systematic but also very detailed approach the everyday world of work. Because a lot of the... Um, of the uh, narrative around migration is either around the world of, of d domestic space or around um, access to, to, to public resources. Um, I think it is also really crucial to begin to recognize the very weak structures of civility that are in place, not only to organize civil society generally in the UK, but a civil society when it's changing so rapidly and when there is sort of all of this... Um, uh, cultural um, diversity to comprehend. And then thirdly, um, 
I think we need to really, as, as academics, if we are to engage in this debate in a more kind of forceful way, um, to really begin to ask ourselves about what the vocabularies um, are um, so that we can kind of defeat some of this more stereotypical um, arguments around migration. So how do we talk about, for example, multilingual citizenship? How do we talk about new patterns of ingenuity as well as new patterns of precarity. And finally, how do we begin to recognize the role of the migrant, both in historic and contemporary terms, as being absolutely fundamental uh, to the prospect of a city like London? Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. I think that's absolutely fair, and, and, and um, in the contact that we have had with the council, um, there are very distinctive narratives. Um, so, for example, people who work in community resources who are generally closer to the street because they are dealing with things like trading licenses or um, what's happening with new churches or new mosques. Um, recognize that there's possibly a value in the street, but they don't know necessarily how to articulate it beyond the vocabulary of community. Um, I have, I have to say, found the planners involved um, specifically uh, in charge of, of regeneration and in economic planning, that I found that the value system is quite restricted. And um, maybe that's because of the stranglehold uh, on local boroughs in, at the moment in terms of how they kind of maximize their resources. But um, there is a high tendency to default to convention. So the assumption in a street like this is that it's going to be really well served by bringing in a Marks and Spencers and a Nando's. Now that might well be the case. Nando's and, and Marks and Spencers might well do fantastically on a street like this. But my problem with that line of argument is that you need to recognize the economic structures that are there. Now, when, when we asked the council whether they'd done an economic survey, they said no. Interestingly, they'd done a consumer survey. So it was much more um, um, necessary in their terms to find out what consumers were wanting as opposed to proprietors. Um, but they also had no comprehension that the street was actually functioning effectively. Um, and 
quite interestingly, one of the planners said to me, we don't do on-street, we don't do on-the-ground survey. We do desktop database survey. And what's interesting is we've developed a methodology here using very cheap student labor where you can literally go in for a week, do a detailed face-to-face -face survey, and have a fairly good, if broad, overview as to what's happening on the street, what are the primary businesses, who's subletting, uh, where are the vacancies. And I just, I find it really concerning um, that there's almost a detachment from locale and a retreat to convention. I also am very aware that there is a civil platform or a civic platform where developers, etc., will be actively negotiating with the council um, to redefine the street. But the traders have not managed to, ha to get that same level of face time, and they won't manage it until that trade association is more muscular. Um, and so it's, I'm not sort of blaming individuals, but there are, are fundamental fissures in the system that is making it very hard for conventional planning to keep up with a city that's really reinventing itself on a 24-hour basis. And I, in my experience over the year, it's not that there was necessarily lack of will on the part of the local authority to engage with that change. It was almost like well, we have um, very distinctive frames which we work through so how would we crack that frame in order to bring in a different kind of value system? So for example, what they've written into part of the plan on the northern end of the street is that they're not going to permit any subdivisions in those properties. Now, I don't know if that's kind of a racialized or ethnicized response, but when you look at the Porter's Review and every piece of document on the high street, it's imagining that short-term retail, pop-up retail, uh, different rental arrangements are going to be absolutely fundamental to the livelihood of the high street. But again, that's seen very much as a middle-class endeavor of creative types who can do funky pop-ups. And when it's happening in real terms, um, it's kind of regarded as a problem. In that context, what do we, um, the proprietors see the local authority as? Do they see it as a as a single organisation which they are fighting, or do they see it as something where they've got some ways into different parts of what's going on? Do they see it fundamentally as a regulator stopping them doing what they want? Yeah, I mean, I would say, and I would say that's typical of proprietors sure. everywhere, yeah. is that they have a kind of mercantile yeah. imperative. And, but um, in this particular case, um, there was a description that there used to be community-based. Um, officers that were employed by the council five years ago who would be actively on the street and they found that that was a very good mediatory mechanism. With funding cuts that's been taken away. Um, they also recognize though their own role in this, that it's not just about a monolithic council being difficult in their eyes, but it's about their own um, capacity to self-organize, to have a proper voice. Now, what's interesting is their self-organizing imperative has really only uh, developed out of crisis. There was a violent and racial incident on the street last year. There were the riots the year before. There's huge planning changes that are coming, and it's only those elements that have really galvanized them into an association. 
minister and uh, I just want to is it people like who you quoted Abdul who have the bigger shops that are organizing more because they have the bigger kind of time well also they have the time and the resources now that they can spend time doing that versus these other individuals okay so none of them have the time I mean they're running independent stores they they they're traveling in so they're not living there um, and that's that's a huge issue and for them for the for the longevity of a trade association they feel that it would be very important and they've worked out this figure of ten thousand pounds that the council would would give them that to have this figurehead that could act as the negotiator call the meetings organize do email databases etc um, Abdul has been major in establishing the trade association, but what's been interesting is there's also been external links. So there's a very strong community organization called Peck and Vision with high kind of um, capacity and capital in organizing, and they've been key in this. And there's also a very, very strong religious organization, and, mu and it's multi-faith. They, they actively engage with one another. So what's been interesting is uh, the the emergence of a trade association is being very much propped up by an existing community association as well as the religious structures. Um, that's two points which are related. I mean, the, and the first half of the presentation, which I know was taken part from your colleague, yeah. I'm just interested in whether a similar analysis has been done at the 2011 census data in terms of tracking the changes in diversity, because obviously you focused on 1991 to 2000. I'm just interested whether there have been much more sort of fundamental changes given the sort of migration patterns, as far as we know, mm -hmm. in the last decade. The second question is related, which is kind of looking at the dynamic of the street over time. I mean, I've known the street and the shops there for about 30 years now. Right. So it's quite interesting you referenced Marks and Spencers, because of course there was a Marks and yeah. Spencers there, and there are views within the council they want to actually bring back some of those kind of shops including the grand store that actually used to be on the high street corner mm -hmm. as well it's going back even further um, but it's in terms of the kind of issues about the change within the area because although you commented about Bellenden Road which um, used to actually be the, almost the cheapest place to live in South East London right. so that's, I live very near it um, but is now incredibly gentrified and you've got houses kind of 50 yards from Rye Lane itself, especially mm -hmm. further south, and even you know the Belland Road Conservation the West, Area yeah. and Hot Holly Grove and so forth, which are worth a million pounds plus. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, there are kind of politics of the relationships between the residents there and what they think of the kind of nature of, of you know having Africa <laughs> on their front doorstep. Mm -hmm. um, that's how, how it's certainly perceived. Um, but also, your comment about the changes in terms of the creative community moving in, which you, know, you sort of talked about some of the facilities, what's been happening in the Bussy building, yeah. the, the, the cafe at the top of the car park, over the, the, the next, next to the um, uh, <coughs> cinema and so forth, the kind of nature of the changes in the area of the cinema moving up market, and, and the, the extent to which kind of the creative classes are actually moving to the area. Mm -hmm. And that, in a sense, may have kind of negative consequences for the existing occupants. So I'm just very interested in sort of tracking through the dynamic of the change. You've done yeah. this for a couple of years yeah. after the Woolworth Road project, which I think is fascinating, by the way. Um, but uh, you're sort of moving this on in terms of um, the kind of 
tracking how changes yeah. are happening in the future and the political activities? Well, I would definitely encourage you to look at Antoine Bakut's report and to email him because he's, he's really getting to grips with very detailed analysis that really shows quite radical shifts from 20, 2001 to 2011. Um, I think um, what's interesting in terms of the affluence of the area, um, particularly to the west and south, uh, that has been exacerbated by the transportation investments, um, is how people articulate living in a cosmopolitan area. So there's been really important work done by Michaela Benson and, and Emma Jackson uh, under Tim Butler's project um, that's interviewed a lot of the residents who live in that area and they all articulate that for them, you know, being a cosmopolitan being really matters. Um, but the road they regard as some kind of front line to their cosmopolitanism. So there are articulations like um, there's far too much black hair on the pavement, um, the meat shops are, are really unhealthy. Well, they're halal meat shops, and anyone who knows how the halal meat industry works knows that it's a highly licensed, highly regulated uh, industry. So again, it's about the absence of these civic platforms that are allowing people to effectively communicate with one another. Now again, Peckham Vision is really interesting here because a lot of the people who are on the Peckham Vision Board live in the Bellenden Road area and one of their primary um, organising narratives is around heritage. Um, and it's really interesting to me that they're having such productive conversations with the traders because they realise that there is um, something really valuable in these new economies but there's also conversations that have to be had about um, how people organise, how cleaning is, is managed, etc. In terms of the creative types, at this point, it's not highly capitalised creative types, it's students. And they've brought a phenomenal nightlife to the area, which in many ways has complemented the kind of daytime real activity um, of the street. There are, there are minor conflicts around the issue of alcohol, so a lot of the proprietors on the street um, come from Afghanistan, Pakistan, wouldn't sell alcohol, don't like to see it in the public domain. And of course, um, if you attend any of the kind of rave venues there on a Saturday or Friday, you'll know that it's, f it's kind of more than full on. Um, but there are also people who own really important big pieces of uh, land behind the street, like the Bassi building, who are really interested in pursuing a different kind of development where um, more multi-dimensional aspects such as ethnicity or different forms of creativity could be brought into the development prospect. Whether they end up selling to the highest bidder, we, we will have to wait and see. But I guess for me it still comes back to how do you get people to effectively communicate? How do you get people to be effectively represented and recognised? And so it's not like there are bad people in this game. There's a whole lot of people with very different invested um, concerns. The proprietors amongst them, they, they, you know, they're highly self-interested. Um, but there should, be, there should be areas of overlap that could be really productive. And I guess it's how you translate some of those early conversations into projects or initiatives that are actually visible, that can 
kind of get people to see the benefit of working with one another, whereas at the moment it's largely about tackling problems as opposed to dealing with prospects. Um, Just wonder where the world boundaries are, where the world countries are, and whether either of those is relevant to your narrative. I mean that again that's really interesting. This is largely um, a labor led area. And the councillors have been really interested um, in the stories and in the research that we've had to tell. And of course, they're, they're very vocal in, um, in this planning process where, where this, this plan is being submitted for national review. So um, the issue is, though, whether that <coughs> electoral dimension of civility is actually engaging actively with the other dimensions of civility, like Peckham Vision, like the Trade Association. And my sense is that they're not. They're communicating much more effectively with the council. Um, did, did anybody try and bid to the Mayor's High Street? They did. <clears throat> because part of that was meant to be supporting the development of trade associations. They did. And I mean, I, I have to um, admit I'm not a general fan of of most of the mayor's regeneration policies, but I think his outer London fund projects, specifically on high streets, have been remarkably effective in the sense that they've worked with agencies and with organisations that are local um, to really kind of reimagine dimensions of civic platforms, um, different terms of rental agreements, um, what you do when you have high levels of vacancy. So there's a good steer there that I think is actually quite interesting. But they haven't got any money. They haven't got any money. But they have, they, have, uh, they have massive amounts of money that have come into the regeneration project. So I think that the, the station redevelopment for itse itself has attracted a five million from the mayor's office. I'm sorry, Christine. I'm sorry, I, mean, I, I, I apologize for being late. So you, know, so I was, you, know, you caused me to think about my local little suburban high street in Sudbury Hill uh, in Harrow. And I realised suddenly what, what had been happening, that it was now dominated by Polish food shops and halal meat and Western Union and things that you described. Yeah. And so the, 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 the majority population goes off to St. Bris and Waitrose. Mm -hmm. But the, the high street has become the shops for the immigrants who are in the area serving their special needs. And so I wonder, in a sense, whether what you're talking about is actually generalisable over London, but of course not generalisable to other parts of the country where they haven't got so many recent migrants who will support the high street in the way that you know, Mary Porters and others wanted to, to continue. I don't, I don't know if this is a absolutely generalisable, but I would I say... I was asking if it's not I say I was generalising it. I, mean, I, I do think if you move around London on the top of a, a red double-decker bus, you will recognise a lot of this landscape in other parts of London. You know, again, I think it comes back to that question of how, particularly in planning terms, do we articulate a view of a whole... Um, for an organisational device that's essentially about the energy of lots of individuals. And I think that you know, high streets surely have enough um, depth and space to accommodate these migrant imaginations, and I think it's very important to the future longevity of the high street. But I think it's also crucial that there are other imaginations that are allowed 
to run with that. Uh, but it won't happen if planning, as well as uh, uh, the practices of mercantile interests, happen on a one-by-one -one basis. So, you know, high streets are generally, um, if something gets vacant, someone else comes in with a bid, it gets approved, and it's a kind of very singular mode of, of organization. And I think that is the fundamental issue. It's not the fact that migrants are here, but that the mode of, of planning and organization has been so fragmentary and so kind of singular, as opposed to thinking much more about this is an economic and cultural system that needs to be imagined and managed as a system. <coughs> yes, thank you. I, I wanted to raise a point which is related to your story about how this kind of quite intimate, careful understanding of these actual economies on the ground could feed into policy-making processes at a London level. Mm -hmm. Now, clearly the Mayor's Out of London Commission plays a role in this, but when you look at the London plan, which is currently out for review, the latest revision, I would say that its, its approach to small-scale business is pretty good. Yeah. It, the planners, I think, do tend to see the retail sector through the eyes of Jens Lang LaSalle mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. sort of West End consultancy kind of mindset. Yeah. So that big modern retail, big units, modern traders are seen as being the indicator of success, as yeah. you said. But the kind of messy, squalid activity that you describe, which actually supports an enormous lot of people, mm -hmm. is kind of treated as invisible or not very important or not something to be fostered and built upon. And over the past 10 years with the London Plan, had some strong representations coming from really just two localities. This was from Queen's Market in Newham, hmm. which is another threatened kind of multi-ethnic and British-serving market area, and from Ward's Corner Coalition in Seven Sisters in Tottenham, uh, in which again is rather simple. But it's not very concerted, it's not very well documented, it's not very well supported yet by academic research and data. And so I'm basically saying I do hope that you and your colleagues and your group will join in this whole business of contributing to the way London economic policy develops because well, there's no mechanisms at the moment to do it very well no, at that all. Would be, that would be amazing and I mean I have colleagues in geography um, who it would be really important to extend that conversation with because I, I'm very weak at understanding the mechanisms of planning. Um, interestingly, not so much just in London terms, but we've put in a bid for funding to take this methodology to Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield, etc., so that we can also get an understanding of how this is articulated in other um, cities that are highly populated by migrants. And the study allows for side-by-side -side analysis of street and of planning mechanisms. But I, I mean, it's been a, an interesting year engaging with the council, but also having discussions with the GLA and with people who are working on high street policy. And I think what we've done is agitate the water, but we haven't managed to pop up consequentially because the other dimensions are so strong. So. You know, the large retailers have lobbyists 
at every turn. Um, and it's just, it's, and I think our vocabulary of value is still weak. And I think we really need to find ways of kind of getting to that, to present the case differently. Because it's partly about the practice. I mean, you I were agree. cruel but fair about the planners uh, and the Pecamarians pe thing. It, it is a very constrained environment they operate in, and they are required to have an evidence base. And yeah. that evidence base, well, as Mike said, come from the world of the retail analysts Absolutely. In, in the real estate industry. And it's about quantity, and it's about quantity to fairly crude level. Yeah. They've got to do it. They've got to pr pr produce an evidence base. So in a way, the way into that is to say there's more evidence you've got here about the economic role of the centre. I mean, I think you've got to go to them with your stuff in these circumstances and say, just get away from the straight, um, crude, because it is very crude and simplistic, something mm. we can do for mm. them, to produce this gap, which means that you've got to have more floor space and it's got to be big floor space. Yeah. And I think that's the only way I can see for, to engage with them, is I to say absolutely the, agree. The, the mechanism you're using is very crude. We've got some more sophisticated stuff, and it isn't just touchy-feely. It's about what the economics are here. One so as it seems to me that's the only way in to engage with, with a lot no, of things. It isn't just about the GIA level of policy. It's about these the people data using these extremely clunky yeah. analyses as a lot of work. One of the things we've recently asked from the council, which I think is a very important piece of information, is um, business rates base. So we want to know what the Woolworth Road brings in for a year and what Ryland brings in for a year, and compare that, for example, to what Westfield might bring in for a year. And I think that might yield some very interesting economic data about um, you know, what's, what's contributing to the public purse. But I absolutely agree. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so the, how much the, re the regulation of the occupation of the, of the high street has influenced the porousness of the space? So what I'm thinking is, if the space has been appropriate, appropriated in a in a in a porous way and in an innovative way and in very spontaneous way, then how much of it uh, depends on the lack of regulation that has been for that high? Uh, High street. So maybe when thinking about planning and and um, delivering policy, how much of porousness can be introduced into into a document? That's a really good point, and it's really interesting to look at, for example, how local authorities regulate markets, uh, as in street markets. So in the case of Rylane, the local authority has been immensely progressive in terms of how it supports its street markets. And it owns actually four of the major street market buildings. But it's also been very proactive in allowing people access to pavement space. Um, the street at the moment is not highly regulated. And I think it has allowed for a whole lot of um, legal and illicit activities, combinations of things that are innovative, but also that might threaten fire and safety regulations. But what is emerging really importantly is the high demand in a city like London for micro space, whether it's micro residential space, micro retail space, and how do we begin to kind of reimagine that and its regulatory devices um, is a key question.
There was a question at the back there. I thought. Did you? Did you uh, yeah. Um, um, at the moment in our program, we are um, we have to work exactly on that area on Rye in Peckham uh, and for a project. And uh, one of the policies the, um, that is uh, proposed in the, in the area action plan for the for the street was um, also to um, restrict um, hot food takeaways for the for the future, which are uh, at the moment, um, which there are a lot of on the street right now. Um, would you also describe that as a kind of, um, well, racialized maybe too much? You no, know, it's uh, interesting. I, I don't see that much hot food on the street. I know that there's a, there's a KFC, there's a, there's a McDonald's, but actually most of the food that's being sold is fresh yams, vegetables, meat. Um, I think that that actually is very closely tied, I could be wrong, to a, a health imperative where um, we just they're just trying to cut down on the amount of kind of incredibly high levels of hydrated fat and sugar that are being kind of pushed into these um, fried food products and then being sold very cheaply on the high street. But what is so interesting to me about Dry Lane, as opposed to the Walworth Road, is how fresh uh, the food is. Um, but it's interesting that they wouldn't necessarily class McDonald's or, or Nando's as being in that category. So. I wondered, um, you know, Dry Lane is not unique. Have you looked at how they've been sort of evolving and possibly managed? Because I think, you know, and I, I think it's interesting, I'm not sure exactly what sort of management one's looking for here. Because yeah. yeah. as soon as you kind of start trying to <coughs> regularise it, mm. somehow it loses its, its facet, you know, its kind Absolutely. of liveliness, its, its, you know, chaos, which is part of the... Mm. No, that's a great question because there's regulation and then there's civility and I think one has to kind of understand the difference. So um, I was at a meeting last year about Kilburn High Street and one of the people at the meeting remembered that they had a trade association on that street and you were absolutely obliged um, to close your shop for half an hour a week to build the association but they had organised it so that different people would be taking different half an hours um, at a way that was convenient for business. Now, what, what's really interesting for me there is how quite sophisticated civil associations can begin um, to effectively regulate but also effectively converse with the council. I think it would be highly problematic if we developed a model of street stewardship where that was the domain of the local authority because I think you just might outregulate every piece of ingenuity that needs to kind of sporadically emerge. Um, I know it's, a, it's an entirely different model because it's a highly affluent piece of the city owned by a single estate, but there is a really good piece of writing um, by the head of the Howard de Walden estate available on the internet. Um, and what I think is really interesting in that piece is how he gets to ask to manage the streets 15 years ago when it was really battling. And he understands that the street is both an economic and cultural system. 
And if you don't have both dimensions, you just don't have a proper street. And so he begins to organize the street where larger platforms like Waitrose would cross-subsidize some of the smaller independent platforms. He clusters the independents one level back because he knows that when you cluster, you get more of a destination impulse. Um, he actively works with the um, housing associations one level back to, to kind of uh, organize a summer market. And I think it's really interesting when you look at the dimensions of civil organization that are possible alongside economic organization, then, then you, there's, there's a lot of imagination that can be yielded when you begin to think about the street as a whole and not just as an economic prospect. Desperately trying to think of any truly independent store on that street. I know. Mm -hmm. But they've all, they've all um, had, they've been moved into the side streets. Yes. And um, even whether the council is inept and the street is corrupt. The issue is how you get the council and the street to converse. Um, and I also think if you had to do kind of detailed analysis of how Tesco's contracts its workers, you would also find huge levels of exploitation, etc. You know, these are mercantile capitalist systems. Let's not pretend that they're organized around the prospect of welfare. Um, so I do take your point. Final question or comments? Um, I'm interested when you make the perception of some of the streets, especially from the exterior, 
and um, I'm kind of like observing it myself. Um, our legal strategy is very delicate street. And it's the issue of um, uh, race concentration mm-hmm. and um, perception of someone who's not in that race. As they mentioned that on their brother, they were Somali and Jamaican tend to concentrate. And one section of Streatham, where I've seen this actually when they last Saturday, it's a very small stretch, only five, six shops, where a restaurant only full of men, as well as like with the females mm-hmm. that sit and the segregated kind of curtain wall. And I find that the people who actually walking down that street, there's absolutely no um, interact, like further down the street on Streatham, actually, mm-hmm. completely different people walking down the street. And um, I feel that that's actually like created a segregated space within the street itself. Um, what's your comment on that? But obviously, hmm. we can't control segregation. Uh, uh, <coughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm of the view that in in intensely multicultural societies, there has to be spaces for sharing and there has to be spaces for retreat. Hmm. Um, I'm most interested, however, in streets where there's a high level of overlap of very varied ethnicities and races. Um, and that's why I've been particularly drawn to these kinds um, of terrains. But it is interesting, the kind of aesthetic racialization of the streets. So what's interesting, we know from, and from the, the, the spread that I read you of who the proprietors are on that street, but the residents to the west call it a black street or Little Africa or Little Lagos. Or, um, and also in, in, in ways that are not necessarily accurate or socially productive on, on, on community websites, etc. So it's interesting when people are making an exterior judgment and are not necessarily penetrating the facade. Um, and I guess that is, again, partly kind of an opportunity for planning to think about what are the kinds of events, what are the kinds of strategies that even if it's twice a year you get people to penetrate facades and experience something beyond um, your comfort zone. We do have to stop. Thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much.